Oh, hello, hello. Oh, man, it's so good to see you all. So many faces I haven't seen in so long. Oh, man, it is good to be together, hey? Just need to stop and take this in a little bit. Yo. It's good to be together. It's a privilege to be together. And... um I think this moment, I mean, has taught us many things, and it's been lots of terrible things mixed in with it, but one of them that we've learned is just the privilege of being together as the people of God in the presence of God. It's something we should never take lightly in our lives. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to get too sentimental. I want to get cracking into God's Word and trust that God would speak to us. Um, it sounds quite, I'm quite loud, loud up here, um, if, if there's any way I can come down and if, if, without um, interfering with the house sound. Um, but uh, we're in week three in our journey through the book of Exodus. Just so you know, I think we've got 11 weeks all in all, and so we're three weeks into 11 through the book of Exodus. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, let me catch you up to speed with where we are at, right? So the, 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 the way where we're at in the story is that God's people are in bondage, right? God's people are in bondage. They're in slavery in Egypt. And, uh, and Egypt really have been using God's people as a kind of cheap slave labor in order to build their empire. That's what's been going on. Life for the Israelites, life for the Hebrews, life for God's people is suffering, is oppression, and it's getting worse as time goes on. And then God arrives, God kind of interjects into the situation, and we see that God is a God who sees their suffering. That God is a God who hears their cries, that God even cares about their oppression, and that he has come down to rescue them from the hands and from the, the power of Egypt. And, and God is doing so by sending a mediator, and uh, this mediator is Moses. Moses is an ordinary shepherd, um, but, 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 but when Moses is born, it's like the hand of God comes upon Moses' life. And, and really, you want to read uh, Exodus chapter 2, you see the extraordinary way in which God raises up this mediator so as to be a deliverer for God's people until the such time as in the story where, where Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let God's people go. And, uh, and, and, and Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And God says, if you do not, God is going to send a series of plagues. And this is where we find our story today. We're opening our Bibles to Exodus chapter 7, if you're following along. Exodus chapter 7, and uh, you can read along with me. We're going to read from verse 14, and uh, we're today covering the first nine plagues in the book of Exodus. We're going to go from about Exodus 7 through to Exodus chapter 10. That's where we're going today. Um, but before we uh, jump into that, just get your, get your hand ready, get your device ready. If you're copying and pasting Exodus seven fourteen, or uh, if you're reading on there, or you're in your Bible, keep your finger there. What you need to know is a very important word. Exodus is a story of redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is freedom from slavery or bondage through a mediator into a new life with God. Redemption is freedom from slavery or bondage through a mediator into a new life with God. And God has sent Moses to be the mediator to rescue God's people from bondage. And Moses came up to Pharaoh and he said, let God's people go. And then we read together in verse 14. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. He wouldn't listen. 
Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out into the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with this staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish of the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. So even if you've got some of the Nile water in your house in a jar, even that that's disconnected from the water but sitting in a jar, if it's in your fridge getting cold, it's going to turn into blood there, right? That's what's happening here. Moses and Aaron did, did as the Lord commanded. And in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But the magicians or the priests of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. They mimicked, they, they, they did a counterfeit miracle to match the same thing. Obviously not knowing on the scale of what God did. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Let's pray, and then let's get into the story of these plagues. Father, as we come before your word, I pray that you would speak to us today, God. Where we are in bondage, where we in our lives are even being influenced, and, and even maybe some of us oppressed in the culture in which we find ourselves now, I pray, God, for our freedom, that you would deliver us, and that we would be able to be, be your people who worship you, on the other side of our redemption, God. We pray that you'd speak to us from your word. In your name, Jesus, we ask. Amen. The big idea behind today's message is, which God will you worship? Who will you worship? The reality is that there are many contender gods that vie for our devotion, for the devotion of our hearts. Money, sex, power, control, comfort, all of these contender gods fighting uh, for your dedication, for your worship, for your sacrifice, for your followership. It's no different than thousands of years ago. Uh, for Israel, um, God had kind of slipped into the background of their lives and their thinkings for hundreds of years they've been subjected to Egypt and the gods and influence of Egypt I mean can you imagine what this is like imagine how Egypt and Egypt's gods had become an influencer in their thinking even in, in their fearing and, and in even dominating the lives of the Hebrews our, our passage today as we look at the plagues of Egypt we're going to see that uh, one of the things that's happening here is that God is coming down to rescue his people from Egypt and the power of Egypt. These plagues are not just random. 
Each of these plagues fell on areas of life that were supposed to have been protected by Egypt's gods, right? Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, speaking of this, said this, There were about 80 major deities in Egypt. All of them were clustered around three great natural forces uh, of Egyptian life. The Nile, the land or the fields, and the sky. So Egypt worshipped many gods. And these gods, you could cluster them into the gods of the Nile, the gods of the land, and then the gods of the sky. You've got to think about this from the perspective of the Israelites. They've been dominated and shaped by these powerful uh, deities of Egypt, if you will, right? To the point where they're afraid of Egypt and this dark power that's at work in Egypt. They're afraid of Pharaoh and his gods. And so God is coming to rescue them. But in coming to rescue his people, he's, he's in a sense, he's got to take on the gods of the culture in which they're in. He's got to expose them for who they are. He's exposing the gods of the culture for, uh, for the powerless, puny little imposter gods that they are. And, and, and in so doing, he's fighting for the freedom of his people. Each one of these gods that Yahweh takes on is a dominating power in Israel's life. Is a dominating power in the way they think about life. And they're afraid of offending and getting in trouble with and each one of these plagues, as God takes on these, 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 these gods of the day, it's like one by one, God is prying the fingers of Egypt and its oppressive culture that is choking Israel. God is one by one, plague by plague, he's prying the fingers free so as to release his people from its power. And at the same time, he's winning the trust of his people. Does that make sense? So the first one that comes along is the Nile. The Nile is turned into blood. Now what you've got to know about that day is that in that day, water was power. Water was everything. No nation could grow more powerful in military strength and in agriculture, feeding people, than the water source where they lived could sustain. Water was everything. It was the greatest governor of the size of people uh, and the military strength of a people was the water source where they lived. And Egypt became a massive powerhouse in the world simply because of the strength of their water source, the Nile River. It was drinking water to sustain a population. It was, it was uh, water to, to irrigate so that you could grow food to sustain an army and to sustain a people. If you didn't have water, you couldn't grow substantial in size in the world. And so the people of Egypt came to worship the God of the Nile. The God's name of the God of the Nile was Happy, or I don't know, my pronunciation of Egyptian gods is not that good, but it's spelled like that, H-A-P-I, that's what he looks like, and there he is. This is the God of the Nile. The Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. Essentially, there is no Egypt without the Nile. It's responsible for transportation, it's responsible for irrigation, for drinking water, for food, even for setting the calendar of Egypt. And Moses lifts up his staff. And he strikes it. And boom, it's turned into blood. The fish are dying. And this is a supernatural work of God. He's exposing the imposter gods of the culture. God has just pried the first finger open of Egypt as he shows you worship this God. This is your sustainer. This is God. Let me show you. I'm bigger and better than this little imposter God that you call happy all the Nile. You've got to imagine what this is like for the Israelites. I mean, for hundreds of years, they've been oppressed. For hundreds of years, they've been in slavery, and they're kind of getting more and more and more and more shrunk down and broken. But there's still this hope. Is, is, God, is God really, 
Going to do what he promised? Genesis 15. Genesis 15, one day God said to Abraham, you, your, your descendants will be, will be taken over by a foreign power. You'll be enslaved for 400 years, but then I will come and I will rescue them. This is promise in their hearts. Could God really do this? You've got to imagine. There's, there's, there's rumors about Moses, right? This crazy dude that comes out of the desert. Maybe he's lost his mind. Uh, sh- surely Egypt is too strong. What's God really going to do? And then Moses walks up to the river and he lifts up the staff and he touches it and Boom, and suddenly it's like a spark of hope is unleashed in the lives and the the hearts and the minds of of the Israelites. I wonder, could it really be true? Is it really true? Is God coming to rescue us? Is he, is he really going to do what he said he's going to do? Is God really stronger than our oppressors? Can you imagine what that's like? The next thing that happens after the Nile is, is, is Exodus chapter 8 verse 1. Uh, and th- thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague your country with the second plague is frogs. And again, Pharaoh refused. Some, some of you ladies are afraid of frogs. I'm sorry if you're a dude and you're afraid of a frog. Uh, but you're terrified of frogs, right? My wife is terrified of frogs, right? So Aaron stretched out his hand over the, uh, over the hand of the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now, we just need to clarify one thing. These were, I'm sure, not our precious leopard toads, right? These were like dime a dozen other frogs. These were not our special leopard toads uh, here in Nurtuk, right? Um, but, but again, it wasn't just about the frogs, These were not random things. Frogs were symbols in that culture. Frogs, symbols of the Nile River itself. Symbols of fertility. In fact, one goddess named, again, I don't know how to pronounce, H-E-Q-E-T, Hakwet. My Egyptian is very poor. Um, One goddess named Hakwet had the head and sometimes body of a frog. There she is there. She is a fertility goddess. Obviously, the Nile being a, a source of fertility. And in a culture where fertility was everything, God says, let me show you how I am more powerful than, than, than the goddess of fertility, this goddess here of the Nile. And it's interesting to see Pharaoh's response, because now it's frogs gone wild in verse 8. And then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me. It's almost like there's some repentance, there's some humility that's crept into Pharaoh. From my people, that I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said, uh, be it as you say, so that um, you may know that there is no one like our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall, uh, they shall be uh, left only in the Nile, where the frogs belong. Verse 12. So Moses and Aaron went from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs. And, and as he had agreed with Pharaoh, and as the Lord did according to the word of Moses, the frogs died out in the houses and courtyards and fields, and they were gathered together in heaps, and the land stank. Again, not leopard toads, just ordinary frogs. Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, When Pharaoh got what he wanted, he hardened his heart and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh takes a kind of sort of like lame, I'm sorry, I'll change, but he doesn't change, right? As soon as he gets what he wants, he goes back into his old pattern. But what's happened is now there's a second finger pride toward the freedom of God's people. After the frogs came, the gnats. Scholars uh, disagree uh, over exactly what this uh, ancient word of insect or type of insect is, right? The, the New King or the King James Version says lice. Still others say mosquitoes. I think as far as I understand, a gnat is a male mosquito. It would make sense that there were also female mosquitoes if they all burst out. But pretty much this is unpleasant insects everywhere, right? 
Again, there's a God of the soil, the God of Geb, is responsible for these things. There's no picture, and we're going to start to accelerate as we move through these plagues. But God is now trusting their trust. God is now uh, he's combating, he's um, challenging their trust in the gods of the land now. And again, we see Pharaoh's response, verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce these gnats, but they could not. You see, so far, the, the priests of Egypt had tried to counterfeit, so as to, 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 to disprove and erode confidence in what God was really doing. So there were gnats on man and beast, in, these mosquitoes everywhere. And the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. His own priests say this. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 20. And then came number four, the flies, right? Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people into the houses and the houses of the Egyptians. They'll be filled with, with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies will be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And so there's flies everywhere. There's flies on your food. There's flies on your face. You can't escape them. Egypt is transformed into Australia, right? Flies everywhere. They're all over, right? And, and the significance here, the significance here is that for the first time, there's a distinction made between God's people and the Egyptians, right? The plagues affect Egypt and the Egyptians, but not on God's people. It's now undeniable that the power of God is at work here. And God is blessing his people and he's in a sense cursing the oppressors of his people. And what we're starting to see here through the Exodus is in salvation there is the coming together of both mercy as well as justice. There is mercy and there is justice. We see a God who saves in salvation as well as a God who brings justice into the world. And Egypt, who had oppressed the Hebrews horrifically, is now, we're discovering, they're not going to get away with their actions. Mercy and justice are the two sides of the same coin of salvation in God's working. You've got to imagine what's happening in the hearts of God's people now. Five plagues down, or four, four plagues down, and, and, and finally I think they're starting to believe. Oh, he's got us. He, he, he really has seen us. He really has heard us, and he's coming to set us free. Could it be true? God's protective power is on us. And he's coming to judge the Egyptians, and he's coming to save us. And then comes the death of livestock. You see, in that day, again, uh, cattle was currency in those days. It's, it's still in parts of our country today. Cattle are, are currency, where a person's wealth can be measured by the number of cattle that they own. Also, the Egyptians had all kinds of sacred cows. Years later, um, or, or certainly a little bit later on, as Israel are walking through the desert, and Moses goes up the mountain, and Israel go walk about in their hearts, and their worship. You remember, they make a god with all their gold in the shape of a it's a it's a, it's a it's a cow it's a bull because of the shape in which these gods in Egypt were formed the Egypt is still at that stage alive in their hearts you see and, and so and so god is taking on these gods in the shape of these bulls and cows 
And God is taking on. And what he's doing is he's prying now another finger free from God's people. And once again, there's a distinction from God's people and the Egyptians. Chapter 9, verse 4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel will die. God is bringing justice on the oppressor, and he is showing mercy to the oppressed. This is a pattern that we'll see God establishing throughout history and culminating in Christ. Surely the people are starting to believe now. Yahweh God. Remember last week we heard the name of God? Yahweh God has heard our cry. He's coming to rescue us. This nightmare is finally going to be over. And then came the boils, sores all over their body. The gods of, again, my pronunciation of the Egyptian gods is not that good, but but Thoth, Imhotep, and Shechemet. Three gods here. These were Egypt's gods responsible for healing them. These were the gods that Egyptians, Egyptians would go to to be prayed for, to, be, to receive healing when they were sick. And God says, you know what? You think this is a real God? You think this God is powerful? Boom, let me show you who's really the powerful God responsible for healing. And, he, and he, he's, he's one by one, he's taking on the gods of the day and he's showing himself to be the God of gods, the true and ultimate God in a world full of contender, imposter gods. And what's happening in Egypt's hearts is, I mean, in Israel's hearts is they see this and they think, wow, we thought this was, this God promised this. He's impotent. He can't do this. God is really the God. That's what's going on here. And all the Egyptian priests cannot replicate the power of God. And then after the boils came the hail and then the locusts. The gods of the fields, the gods of the soil are now defeated. And then finally the ninth plague. This is a big one. Now the greatest of all the Egyptian gods. The ninth plague is darkness. The greatest of all the Egyptian gods was the god called Amon-Ra. Amon-Ra. In fact, Pharaoh was known as the son or the incarnation of Amon-Ra. Amun-Ra was the king of all of Egypt's God, and he was the God of the sun. He was the God of the sun, and so Yahweh God comes along, and he just turns off the sun. How and what it looked like, I don't know, and I think let's not get in the weeds there. But he takes on the greatest deity of Egypt's day, and he just switches it off like a light switch. This must have been terrifying for the Egyptians because they could do nothing to match this. One by one, the gods of the day have been shown to be impotent imposter gods, not worthy of the fear of God's people, not worthy of their worship. God, the big idea today, God is the God of gods. And this battle for the worship of God's people has now swung in favor of the of the true God, of Yahweh God. We've tracked with the first nine plagues. Next week we'll look at plague number 10. And so we've stepped back thousands of years. And if you were a Hebrew, put yourself into their shoes. You were living in captivity with barely a hope of a promise alive in your heart. Each one of these plagues, one by one, the clutches of Pharaoh and Egypt are being pried from your life. As God begins to give your life back, as he begins to give justice upon the oppressor, he begins to show the faithfulness of himself and who he is to his promises. God is really the God of gods, and he's delivering his people. He has come down to rescue his people. That's what's going on here. Isn't it extraordinary? Isn't it extraordinary? 
What is redemption? Redemption is freedom from slavery or bondage through a mediator into new life with God. Now, it's at this point this morning in my preparation that I had written the application for this message and then felt another one this morning. And so how we navigate from here, Robin, good luck as you try and drive with slides. But I felt something so strong in my heart for us as a people. As we look at the story, what does this mean for your life and for my life? How did Egypt, how, how did Israel become enslaved by Egypt? Well, it, there was a time when Israel and Egypt were living in the same place and they were coexisting. There, there was a symbiotic relationship. But slowly over time, the dominance and influence of Egypt crept. And slowly over time, slowly but surely, Israel became oppressed by these Egyptian pharaohs and oppressors. And I don't know that they realized until it was too late what's going on here. I think that we're living in a cultural moment that is shaping our lives profoundly. There are agendas being pressed and pushed on your life and my life 24-7. I was watching, um, I was watching an episode of uh, a series we're watching, uh, I think New Amsterdam on Netflix. And uh, I mean, I don't get tons of time to watch Netflix. I'll probably get one or maybe two episodes if I'm lucky in a week. But about eight or so episodes into this, I began to become aware of the, gen- uh, the agendas that are being pushed in this, in, in, in every series. There is. These, the, the, this world we're living in, the media that we're consuming, whether through social media or through like, like platforms like Netflix, etc., and, and all sorts of these uh, media platforms, it's not neutral. There are agendas that are being pressed. I became aware in this series of the agendas around identity, the agendas around gender fluidity, the agendas around race, the agendas around faith. All of these things are slowly and subtly being, being, being pressed through these mediums with nice music and interesting stories that engage you and make you want to come and watch more and listen. Whenever you get a free moment and you're tired, what do you want to do? Oh, let's put on a this, you know. And slowly but surely, these agendas are being pressed and we are being molded and we are being shaped subtly but relentlessly by our culture. David Wells says in his famous definition of worldliness, he says, worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Just think about it. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Like sand dunes are shaped and sculpted slowly over time by the prevailing winds. The prevailing winds of our culture. We'd be foolish to think, although we don't feel it, although there's no jarring shocks necessarily, although every now and again it does feel jarring, uh, although, although most of the time it's subtle, it is shaping our lives. And we are the people of God who, who are called to, to live and to, to become like. Christ, to live out the image of God in the midst of this world, but yet culture is influencing and shaping us, like the story, and again, I'm sorry about if you love frogs, but the story of the frog that's slowly being boiled in the pot, it's terrible, don't ever do that, please, got nothing against frogs, but you know that story, when, when the water is there and it's, like, and it's hot, frog will jump out, right? But slowly, degree by degree. And I'm not saying we can't watch Netflix. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. But 
our culture is shaping us with significant agendas all the time. And so I want to ask you, we have to deliberately and discerningly have a strategy for how we are going to be formed by God. Otherwise, we'll be shaped by the agenda of our day. What's your strategy? How are you taking seriously the human being that you are being formed into? Parents, I can speak to you for a second. Parents, you are responsible, but you only have a few years for how you are going to shape and influence the young lives in your care. What is your strategy? Young adults, if I can speak to you, there is a war going on. For our, in, in our, in, and the battlefield is that of identity politics and countless others. And it is aggressive and it wants to shape you. What is your strategy for how you are going to be formed by Christ? It will not happen automatically. I sometimes feel it as a pastor. I feel it acutely like that like we have an, an hour and a little bit on a Sunday, maybe an hour and a half on a Sunday, and a couple of instances in our week where we read the Bible. But then how much of time is being shaped by culture and media and social media? How much are you looking at social media and, and other media platforms that's constantly shaping on your life? What is your strategy for being formed by Christ? Tim Keller was uh, speaking through Exodus, and uh, when he was a young man as a student, he sat literally on the floor while the the Old Testament um, uh, professor, Alec Mortier, was teaching on Exodus. And this is what Alec said. He said, if you were to ask an Israelite, who are you? The Israelite might reply, "I I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And our mediator led us out, and we crossed over. And now we're on our way to the promised land. And though we're not there yet, God has given us his law to make us into a community. And he has given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness. And he is present in our midst, and he will stay with us until we arrive in our home. And Eric Mortier said this, that's exactly what the Christian says, almost word for word. We are those people freed from bondage and slavery, but we are being formed into the likeness of God as we journey toward that day when Christ comes to put this world to right. That is the world that you are being prepared for. That is the world that I am being prepared for. And one day we will be there. And because of the work of Christ, we will even belong and we will fit and we will not reduce it and make it less. While we walk, though, we are to be formed according to our true home, our true country that we are coming to. We are to be formed into the likeness of Christ, the likeness of heaven. We are to be shaped by that home. What is your strategy? Which land are you living for? How, how are you deliberately guarding against the influence of culture that would cause you to, to, to live as if it's now or bust. It's everything now. To, to, to succumb to the pressures of our day. Or are we going to deliberately say, culture, you're on, its, on a leash. Social, my social media, this is how much influence you can have in my life and no more. Please, I'm not, I'm not saying these things are evil and bad and et cetera, et cetera. 
But we be naive to think that they're not shaping our lives. We need a strategy with which to engage with them that puts them on a leash and, and, and prioritizes Christ as the primary influence in our lives in order that we would become not echoes of our social media feed or echoes of the series we watch, but we would become echoes of Christ. Does that make sense? So in what areas are God's people still in bondage today? I had um, four, and we have nowhere near the time to unpack all four of them. But they rhyme beautifully, and I think I might share them with us anyway. Treasure, measure, pleasure, and leisure. Come on. Hey? The, the, it's not alliteration. What is it? What is, what, what is that uh, d- divisive language? I don't know. Treasure, measure, pleasure, and leisure. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not an ultimate list. It's just a list that rhymes and I think is timely for now. And perhaps you can do a little audit of your life. Treasure, the, 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 the God of money. Could it be that you think you've got money, but actually money's got you? For some of us, money has become the dominant thought in our lives. It could, be, uh, it could be getting money. It could be needing money. It could be fear of losing money. But money has become a key issue in your life. And, and, and we can be looking to money to, to save us, to protect us, to keep us, especially in a moment like COVID. Money can become your functional savior. Measure. Comparison. Comparison. Where we, where we have to keep up with everyone else, where social media becomes a hub where, where I show off my best and I compare myself with other people's best and we compare our lives, successes and the and the happiness of other people and it can become a place whereby you, you, you derive your approval and you can, in a sense, get your worth from how many likes and how many shares that you can garner. Your identity can get wrapped up in there and it can breed worth and with life identity issue because i'm really not anti-social media as if this is your first meeting in our church i'm coming across like this like technology social media i think it can be used incredibly well but i also know there's another side to it that we need to be wise of we've done treasure we've done measure there's pleasure. There's this. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just coming and say it. I think pornography is like a pandemic that has long been here, long before COVID ever got its claws into our lives, addicting and rewiring the brains of men and women, boys and girls now, transforming people into addicts of shallow, unrealistic, self-centered sexuality, where we start to view objects to be used and enjoyed at our own disposal. And it's so accessible through our phones and it gets hooks into our life and it can be so difficult to free. And if you're single, if you think that what you do while you're single, you're mistaken. You're sowing If you're married, you're creating a toxic in your own marriage before it gets and damaged. Bottom line, if you want to with me, come and pick it up with me. But I want to see us free from these things. Be free, no longer living under the shame of the sin that we're grappling with, but free to be the people of God in our moment. And the last one is leisure. Uh, it's life. 
I think for some of us, our Sunday routine has become centered in comfort and our leisure, and not in His worship and His people. And it's a big thing coming out of COVID. For some of us, I think we initially stayed away from Sundays and gatherings because of safety and stopping the spread. But it's amazing that can become kind of like I'll just do church on catch-up, you know? Because I quite like the freedom I have with my leisure, etc., etc. But really, worship in the and catch bring back Australians. This is this is something that you build your life around. It's something you when we, when we do this, when we when we take our Sabbath, when we take our Sundays, and we just orientate it around our own leisure. The first step towards a self-oriented life, I think, it's a, it's a and your absence from community and family worship, it it serves. It doesn't serve you and it doesn't serve the body that misses your contribution and your smile and you from our family. So how will we respond to these four temptations? The, the, the one way that Pharaoh didn't respond with repentance. We're a people of repentance. Pharaoh hardened his heart hardened his heart the more destruction life we are a people of repentance repentance means i change the way i think about this thing that leads to a change in the way that i live in life we are those people who 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 change the way we think and then change the way we we live and we do so all under the grace and empowering of jesus because we too have a mediator We too have a mediator, a mediator who comes to set me and you free from the bondage of sin. He mediates forgiveness from sin. He mediates right standing with God, even opening the door for the Spirit of God to come in and live within us and transform our lives and empower us to live in new ways which were never possible outside of the presence and power of God in our lives. Christ is the true and better mediator who comes to you and says, come, let me lead you free from the bondage of this world into a new way of living in and through my power, free from addiction, free from bondage to money that really can't save you anyway, free from a self-oriented life so that you can be a part of the people of God, serving others in the regular rhythms of community, irregular rhythms of community, free even in your sexuality, a beautiful thing that God himself made to be enjoyed the way that he designed it to be. And Exodus is the story of a God who doesn't only save then, but he saves you and I now through the mediator that is Christ and and transforms who we are, shaping us into his likeness so that we can walk toward ultimately our true home every single day, becoming more and more fit to belong there with him in heaven. That's the invitation I put before you today. All of us, all of us can come to Christ. What's the thing that Christ wants to change in your heart? Where have you become influenced, dominated, shaped by our culture? Perhaps is there treasure, measure, pleasure, leisure that's now dominating and shaping your life? And you need to say, no, no, this far and no further. 
Christ has come to set us free. Maretta and band, I know you guys have got a bunch of songs up your sleeve. Come and lead us in song as we do business with Jesus. I really feel this is an opportunity as you look at this message. There is this overwhelming sense that Christ is our mediator, the true and better Moses, who has come down to rescue you and I from the, from, the, from the gods of our culture that would otherwise creep into our hearts in order to transform us into a people who look like him, who love like him, who live like him, as we together walk toward that day when Christ comes to take us home or we go and be with him, whichever happens first. But... For some of us, we've got to draw some lines in the sand today. Whose are you? Which God will you serve? So let's stand together and let's worship as I pray for us. I realize I've just touched on a bunch of things like this. But this is a moment whereby we make a deliberate decision and we say, Christ, I'm coming to you in order that you would transform me. I'd love to lead us in prayer. And invite the band just to create a space for God to minister to us. We are the people of God under the grace of God in Christ Jesus in the presence of God who is at work in our midst for for our good, for our shaping. Let's come before Him in prayer. Thank you, Christ, that you are our true and better mediator, that you, you came to set us free. That all the justice, all the judgment that was earmarked for us on how we lived was extinguished on the cross as you died. In order that the mercy and grace that we need right now in this moment would be able to come to us freely. Come Holy Would you speak to us right now? You, you do business with Here's my. Maybe you recognize the drift in your own heart. And this morning you want to draw a line and say, this far and no further. I will not harden my heart to God. God. And, and what is that? Repent. Sorry been acting in the way I've been living. Christ, I choose to follow you from this place. Jesus. hunger and zeal in our hearts the the, the fancy word in the Bible is consecrate to set apart God 
I set myself apart in this cultural moment to be yours, God. Each of these plagues, as God was taking on these Egyptian gods, it was a way not only... It was a way of getting Egypt out of the people's hearts. It was God exposing these lies, these counterfeit gods, so that Egypt would be taken out of the lives of people so that the truth of Christ and who God is could be put in in their hearts. God, I, I set myself apart. I'm consecrated God, set aside to be yours, to be your, your person, your people, your vessel. God, I don't want to be shaped by my culture and by my world more than I'm shaped by you. Would you give me a strategy, Lord Jesus, a discipline, a practice, a rule of life so as to be able to engage and put our culture on its leash? Jesus, I pray in my heart by your spirit, would you, would you cause worldliness to be exposed for, for what it is, God? And would you cause truth and life to be exposed for the wonderful thing that it is, Jesus? And anticipating that there's going to be moments, Jesus, whereby truth gets me in trouble with my culture. I pray for courage as well as humility and gentleness to be able to engage in an honoring way but to know where my line is and to trust you Christ that your approval is genuinely enough for me